Welcome to another Friday Roundtable Extravaganza. Let's get right into it. Joining me today is a former New York City police officer turned Florida man turned political commentator, John Cardillo, and author of the new book, Woke Army, The Red-Green Alliance That Is Destroying America's Freedom, Asra Nomani. John, Asra, welcome to the Rubin Report. Oh, thanks so much, long overdue. Yes, Asra, this is really long overdue. I, I slid into your DMs, as the kids say, about uh, two weeks ago, and I could not believe that you had not been on the show. So uh, John's obviously been on a bunch of times, and my audience is familiar with him. Uh, so John, you're gonna have to bear with us for a moment because we're gonna introduce Asra to everybody. Asra, why don't you set up this clip for us? Because uh, you, you went to the White House during one of what I call the Hamas protests, not the pro-Palestine protests, because I don't see anyone there saying anything negative about Hamas, but if you want to clean that up, go ahead. Uh, you were there for that, and you, you took a little video. Is that a good enough setup that we can throw to it, or do you want to add anything else? Well, you know, I've been walking these streets of Washington, D.C. for 40 years since I arrived as a teenager, and I know these streets. And on that day, the streets of Washington, D.C. were overrun by this phenomena that I'm calling the woke army. And let's, let's let it roll and let people see what I saw with my very eyes. My back pinned to the iron gates of the White House, only Take. protecting us. Asra, there's an awful lot to talk about related to this. Uh, as the evening went on and it got darker, it got kind of scarier out there. There was some vandalism, blood on the gates, or you know, paint that was you know supposed to depict blood on the gates. Uh, the chants got louder, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but you are you are known because you've been outspoken about this. You happen to be a Muslim woman, but, um, and you've spoken out against Islamism. Uh, must have been kind of nerve-wracking for you to be there in the first place. And then can you just talk about some of the chants and what you think is really going on as opposed to the way the mainstream media frames a lot of this? Yeah, you know, through the afternoon, I watched the, the protests. And at the protests, we saw the leaders of the woke army that are the Islamist wing, the, uh, the Muslims that have established organizations like the Council on American Islamic Relations, American Muslims for Palestine, Students for Justice in Palestine. And what I heard again and again were political threats. You know, and now by Joe Biden had become genocide Joe. Mm -hmm. So they had created this narrative now where the Democratic Party had failed them. And then I followed them as they were going down Pennsylvania Avenue. They circled back around K Street where all the lobbyists and, and lawyers are, you know, writing the laws for America. And they came down 17th Street and I knew where they were headed, right to the gates of the White House. And sure enough, 
from that footage, you can see that they arrived at the fence perimeter and they threw the Palestinian flag between the the spaces of the of the of the iron fence that they have, and they climbed atop that that gate. And the chants you could hear are the ones that I have known since I was a child. Allahu Akbar, God is great. A simple idea, but now weaponized. Takbir, that is what we say when you want to elicit support for what you're saying. And then this is a sign that everybody has known, right? From mm-hmm. the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. This is what we also heard. And this is what you hear in English. But what I stood there and I could hear them saying in Arabic very loudly is Philistine al-Arabiya. And the translation, people can hear it, is Palestine is Arab. And so the message is very clear for the genocide of the Jews from the river to the sea. And what I could feel, Dave, in in those hours was in this honor-shame culture from which I come, there was and there is no shame for what Hamas has done and continues to do against the Jewish people and also the Palestinian people, mm-hmm. their siege of terror. And what there was, was a bloodlust. That October 7th massacre has become a rallying cry and a moment to seize for the destruction of the state of Israel. And that is why your work and everybody who elevates the voices of Jewish people right now is so critical because the goal is the destruction of the state of Israel. And people will see this sign. It was one of the signs and it says what? Workers World Party. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This, This is the left. This is socialism. This is the, the Marxist influence that everybody warns about. It's in the fine print. How did I get these signs? Because I waited like a good reporter till the end to pick up their trash. And where had they left their trash? On the grass in front of the White House. They put it through those slots and they trashed the front of the White House along with that red paint on the gates. And I am here as a Muslim American to testify to the danger that we face today and tell everybody that whatever you fear is an underestimation of Hmm. their ambition. Wow, John, I don't know how you're gonna follow up that kind of chilling line right there, but you know, as a former NYPD guy, I guess my question to you is that as we watch these rallies and protests and closing of bridges and closing of public spaces and intentional targeting of Jewish-owned stores and things of that nature and going to the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, this has nothing to do with Jews, um, what would you, what would New York City have done in its heyday as opposed to what it does now where it lets these people rampage through the Upper West and everything else? It's one thing, I don't expect the White House to do anything because I think the White House is almost in on it at this point. But what do you think, uh, New York, when you were in the NYPD and Giuliani was in his heyday, how would this have all been dealt with differently? Oh, much differently. I mean, you know, New York City literally wrote the book on disorder control. The New York City Police Department, uh, their disorder control manual, Riot, nice way of saying it is the Bible. And it's the Bible, not just for United States law enforcement, but for law enforcement around the world. The NYPD chiefs would go and train departments uh, in the Middle East and in the Far East. But they would have contained this far better than we're seeing it contained today. And that's not unique to New York. 
Uh, the LAPD would have done that under Daryl Gates and then Bill Bratton when they actually had chiefs. Uh, you know, these guys were demonized and villainized for being racist and oppressive. No, they were doing their job, right? They were chief law enforcement officers. Chicago PD would have handled these things better. Because you got to look at, you know, we've gotten to a place, and I think Oscar would agree, Dave, you and I have spoken about it, where these Hamas sympathizers are, are linked with Black Lives Matter, linked with Antifa. They're all operating mm -hmm. together, which is why I love the title of her book. And I didn't know about the book, and now I'm looking very forward to it because uh, it, it's spot on. But I'm also very glad that Oscar brought up CARE. So let me give you an anecdote about the Council on American Islamic Relations. They threaten to sue people. They talk about how they're this peaceful uh, civic organization uh, uh, for the promotion of, of you know, uh, honorable uh, patriotic Muslims. And let me tell you why that's an absolute lie. Here in South Florida, in a little town called Miramar, Florida, in the southern end of Broward County, there's a mosque. I, I won't say the name of the mosque, but there's a mosque that if you go to CARE's website, you can find that mosque. And when you go there, it's not anything impressive. It's a little dinky house. So I had found out through some sources in law enforcement and the intelligence community that this mosque uh, had some radical ties and that certain uh, people from that mosque had done some radical fundraising, et cetera. Well, when you look at the, when you go to the property appraiser's website, for Broward County and you look at the footprint of that mosque and, and I'm going somewhere and, and it's gonna be interesting to the audience. Mm -hmm. You see facility, that's the mosque. And then you see a little white house on a plot of land owned by the mosque. When I dug into who lives in that house for life, she's got that house for life, uh, if she wants it for free, is the mother of a guy named Adnan al-Shukri Juma. Now he was killed by operators in Pakistan around 2012, but he was the architect of the failed New York City subway bombings. So a care sponsor wow. of Hamas in a, in a pretty uh, uh, you know obscure little community in South Florida is is essentially paying for the livelihood for the rest of her life of the mother of one of their terrorist martyrs. These organizations, these organizations are absolutely about fundraising, promoting, and enabling terror. And I often tweet out a simple three-word tweet over videos uh, like Oscars. It simply says Palestinians equal Hamas equal Palestinians because, like you said it in your opening. There is no protest from any of these Palestinian groups about the, the genocidal behavior, the, the brutal, savage behavior of Hamas on October 7th, because the Palestinians are nodding and winking. These are their foot soldiers. It's not some fringe group. So law enforcement used to take that stuff very seriously. Now they're acting like people like us are, are radical conspiracy theorists coming up with the with these asinine concepts when in reality we're blowing a very necessary whistle on a very real problem. So Oscar, it's fairly obvious to me, and I think most people watching this, that you guys are not radical conspiracy theorists, either as a Muslim woman yourself or a former NYPD guy. Uh, but what would you say largely in terms of the, the American Muslim community, and of course it's as vibrant and as any other community, and people have all of their own thoughts and beliefs and follow their faith differently and, differently and everything else. In terms of what, what percentage of people are actually supporting this stuff? Because I think that that's the face we're seeing. And if that's not the face, then then I would want to show some other voices too. Yeah. I mean, that's I, that's partly why you're here. Yeah. John, what years were you at the NYPD? I was there from the early 90s to the early 2000s, so right after 9-11. Okay, excellent. So I just want to include your experience in, in what I'm going to answer, Dave. So I arrived in America in 19... 69. I was a four-year-old girl, arrived at JFK Airport, and my brother and I were wearing um, striped shirts matching so that if the flight attendants uh, lost us, and they could match us back up together because my parents had arrived earlier. 
to make a home for us in, in, at Rutgers University. And my dad was the first person to start Friday prayers at Rutgers University. And he worked with a man named Mahmoud Tahir from Egypt. And in the 70s, they started getting requests to build a mosque with money from Saudi Arabia, which was now getting its wealth. And so my father and my mother, they practice an interpretation of Islam that I call an Islam of grace. It is an Islam that allowed me to be a Girl Scout. It got me to read Nancy Drew. She was my best friend as an immigrant girl in America. But what I have here in the first pages of my book are names that John is going to recognize. That's my cast of characters. Dave, to answer your question, these are the people who are the faith of our American Muslim community. And they are names like, number one is Hatem Bazian. His name is easy to remember because if you pronounce it a different way, his nickname is Hate Um Bazian. Who is he? Yeah. He's the founder of Students for Justice in Palestine that has unleashed this woke army onto our campuses. And then a name that maybe John, you might not know, John Esposito an academic at Georgetown University who got first Saudi money and then Qatar money to create the Bin Talal Center for Muslim Christian understanding. Which monotheistic faith is missing? The Jewish faith. Mm -hmm. Then Jonathan Brown, Omid Safi at Duke University. Council on American Islamic Relations was formed in the 1990s. And at their secret meeting, the FBI documented that when they talked about Hamas, they agreed to say Sama. I don't know if you remember that anecdote, John, but they were going to trick. Yeah, I remember right? that. They were going to trick the FBI agents that were they knew were listening. Well, they messed up and they would say Hamas once in a while. But Dave, the problem is we have some three to five million Muslims in America. And yes, for the most part, they are not the ones marching in the streets. Mm -hmm. But the problem we face is that our leadership is dominated by anti-American, mm -hmm. anti-Israel, I would argue anti-West, and definitely anti-Jew leaders who have their roots in this organization called Ikhwan Muslimin, the Muslim Brotherhood. And they are the Muslim brothers in America. And now they have their Muslim sisters, Ilhan yep. Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Linda Sarsour, that are the face of this radicalization. And they do not represent my family or me. But unfortunately, they are the Muslims that the Biden and Obama administrations have used as emissaries for us. And that is why I ultimately argue they betray not only Palestinians and the world, but also Muslims. And that's why, you know, we formed this Muslim reform movement, a handful of us some years ago, and they are always constantly trying to crush us, demonize us and make us um, the enemy of Islam, but in fact, we are, I think, the best representation of what Muslims can be in this, not only in America, but in the world. Asra, you've also reminded me that today is day two of Hanukkah, and I want to wish a very happy Hanukkah to Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and AOC <laughs> and the rest of them. If they only knew where the story of Hanukkah took place and what it was about, it might change some of their current political views, but I sincerely doubt it. All right, well, actually, I want to jump into a whole bunch of other topics 
that I think really are going to dive right into the reason that your book is titled such and that Red Green Alliance, because it's not just about religion anymore. This is about gender. This is about skin color. And really, it's what you pointed out to in that in that sign you were holding, that this is how they are trying to usher in socialism and communism into America. So let's start with this clip at a congressional hearing. This is AOC, one of the, well, who I call one of the Hamas caucus members, uh, trying to explain why we shouldn't care about biological boys in biological girl sports. You know, I've spent a um, decent amount of my time here in Congress sitting through panels and hearings of men attempting to restrict the rights of women and telling us that it's for our own good. Um, but I want to dive a little bit more deeply into why this issue with targeting trans women in sports is particularly problematic, not just for trans girls, but for all of us. We're here today because there's a proposal here, and there are several proposals here, uh, to further marginalize trans women in sports. And I think about this all the time because trans people in the United States doesn't even exceed 1% of our population, and yet there's so many resources and energy and time dedicated to figuring out how we can more finely exclude them um, from our sports. And I thought, why? Why? You said there are some proposals. I mean, we've seen this in Ohio. There was a proposed ban on trans athletes that originally allowed for genital examinations on minors in order to quote unquote protect women? Is that correct? Unfortunately, yes. And so we're seeing here in this guise, under the guise of not only trying to further marginalize trans women and girls, we are talking about opening up all women and girls to genital examinations when they are under age. That's right. Potentially just because someone can point to someone and say, I don't think you're a girl. That's correct. All right. First off, lady, they could just look at the birth certificate. Nobody wants to check their genitals. That's number one. Uh, John, the way these people flip language is, is just never-endingly extraordinary. When she's talking about protecting trans women, what she's saying really is oppress actual girls. Yep. Look, I'm glad you went there first, Dave, because as I'm watching that clip, I'm thinking we're even guilty of playing into their narrative with terms like trans women and mm -hmm. trans. No, they're not. They're boys. They're boys. But, you know, look, she defeated her own argument. She admitted as, as a sitting member of the United States Congress in a committee hearing room that the trans population is sub one percent. <laughs> Yet we're supposed to just revamp <laughs> everything and accommodate. Right. Sub 1%, so, so screw the 99.6% of actual women playing these sports. Mm -hmm. Let's pepper in a bunch of dudes. Let's just, and, and where are the parents? Where are the dads? I mean, look, a, a female student athlete works their ass off academically, athletically. They get a scholarship. They get to a good college. They're about to jump in the pool. And Leah Thomas, who can swim along, so, well, he sucked as a male swimmer, whatever yep. the guy's name is, jumps in the pool and destroys, destroys everything they spent a decade and a half working toward to get there. Completely wipes out their chance for records, their name on the wall in that school, maybe in the Athletic Hall of Fame, maybe making it to the Olympic team because they play. It is so preposterous, but it's also tragic. 
It is incredibly tragic that we are subjecting little girls to this. And now there's a story, I forget where it came out of, it was pretty big news the last couple of days, how a, a, a young girl was forced to sleep with a boy who felt he was trans mm -hmm. and the parents notified about it retroactively. To me, this is criminal. People need to start going to prison for this. Well, actually, in our free state of Florida, it is criminal, it is. Um, which gives us a nice segue. Let me let me throw to uh, an interview that Nikki Haley did. This got her in a bit of hot water uh, because she was saying that basically uh, if a 12-year-old wants to transition, that we should kind of leave it up to them and the parents. And there's some interesting stuff here related to limited government and parental rights that I think you can have a nice debate on. Let's take a look. Uh, Madam Ambassador, another question is what care should be on the table when a 12-year-old child in this country assigned female at birth says, actually, I feel more comfortable living as a boy. What should the law allow the response to be? Well, I think the law should stay out of it, and I think parents should handle it. Parents should handle it. Now, I think there's probably a way you can make principled arguments on this, and it depends what you think about limited government and everything. But in that this has become so dysregulated, if it is not for the government to defend the right of that kid to keep their body parts until they are of age, then I, I don't know what the purpose of the government is. Osra, is that, is that a bit much for you? No, not at all, because you know we have a constitutional right in the United States of America as parents. That's what's remarkable. We have free speech rights and we have parental rights. And what is happening now is just like John was saying, like, and just as you were saying, like, there is a machine, there is an industry that is rewriting our language and rewriting our laws to remove those kind of rights that we have. I, I just teared up in my own self, my, my younger self, listening to AOC, because I brought knowing that we were gonna talk about this, and a symbol of my empowerment as a girl in America. This is a baton, it's a relay race baton, right? And when I was 10 years old in Morgantown, West Virginia, where we moved, a girl named Jane Thomas called me, the new immigrant girl in town, and said, hey, will you join our relay team? And all of a sudden, I got to run with Linda McCroskey and Lisa McCroskey and Jane Thomas, they were the uh, popular girls. I was never going to mm. reach that social circle. Why am I a strong woman here before you today with my voice coming from a culture where I was told silence is golden, which my adversaries would wish I had followed for the rest <laughs> of my life? Why am I here? Because sports empowered me. In West Virginia, I ran track, I ran cross country and became a strong young woman then. But now this is the industry this book, Gay BCs, is just one of the many books, you know, that has been spotlighted by us as parents. T is no longer for train, but it's for trans. So that 1% that AOC talked about, we're rewriting books to, so that that 1% can grow, which, hey, if, if it grows, it grows. But we don't need to steal constitutional rights in order to allow people to live in the United States with freedom and empowerment and and ultimately also uplift our girls. John, is there a little bit of a catch-22 with this one in that I obviously agree with Asra and we are the parental rights people, uh, but by Nikki saying the government shouldn't defend that 12-year-old in a time when the culture is pushing it on everybody to encourage transitioning, maybe this is one of the moments, and this has been DeSantis's position, which is that this is one of the moments where the government actually does have to step in and defend those kids. 
Yeah, look, I agree, man. And I'm a small government guy. You and I have had this conversation offline countless times, right? But uh, about various issues, Second Amendment, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But uh, case, look, all somebody has to do is watch that show, I Am Jazz, that lunatic mom and the cuckold dad, to yep. see that some of these parents should not be making these calls. I mean, you've got a depressed kid who's borderline suicidal, nobody wants to call it out and say it for what it is, who's now almost morbidly obese because the mom thought it was cool to be a radical leftist with a trans kid. I belong to a beach club here and and, um, a family they actually kicked out for being weirdo deviants pretty much forced their kid their their little uh, a girl to dress like a boy and the kid was miserable and the kid wanted to be a little girl and they were these radical leftists well-known leftists uh, a pretty affluent family and everybody at the club was was sick of it and and one of the women there would would babysit the kid and told me that what she saw in the house sickened her the way they were forcing this kid the parents into this trans lifestyle when the kid just wanted to be a normal kid of the gender they were born. So as much as it pains me to advocate government intervention mm-hmm. on this issue, if, if you were to do an honest study, I think you would find that many of these kids, if not the vast majority, if not all of them, are being pushed by these parents who think it's cool. I mean, imagine- Oh, no, we know like, this. There, there are a lot of studies that, that yeah. show that mutilating your child because you want to be accepted by a bunch of other knucklehead leftists at a dinner party. Is there anything worse? I I mean, if you're not going to protect your own kid from that, then the government does have to step in. So I want to connect this to something else, because obviously we're talking about support for a genocidal terrorist organization. We're talking about mutilation of children. And then the other thing that is now happening is it seems to me that we are now letting anyone and everyone gladly walk into this country. And if you say anything about it, they will call you, of course, a racist or a Nazi. Uh, Take a look at a little bit of a compilation of videos that are just from the last week, what's going on at our border. I love you, Joe Biden. Thank you for everything, Joe Biden. I'm a good person. I want to be a good person here in the United States. I came here because I want quality life. You know, America is a, la- is a land of opportunity. Asra, what happened to what it says on the Statue of Liberty? Something about you're poor, you're tired, you're huddled masses. These people all look relatively young. They look relatively healthy and well-fed. Most of them, the large percentage of them are male. Uh, We don't do any vetting on any of these people. It's very nice that he thinks America's pretty great. He actually thinks America's better than most progressives seem to think it is. Uh, But you, you can't not have a border. No, you have to have a border. And having traveled many borders, I know how hard it is to cross them. You know, I have tried to cross between India and Pakistan. Not easy. Into <laughs> Afghanistan. I bet you that one's not right. easy, yeah. It was not easy. Do you know what I mean? I was at the corner of India at the China border. I wasn't going to be able to take a step into China. You know, it just doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. Like, we have allowed such a porous system. And as an immigrant, I can testify to 
everything that we just heard about the beauty of America, the world over wants to come here, except for the progressives that want to exactly taint mm-hmm. our beautiful nation. But we must be a nation of laws. And ultimately, what what is the connective tissue in all of this? There is an ideology happening, sweeping through this nation in which it is transforming the identities of children, allowing the identity of what it means to be an American to be hijacked, and ultimately waging war with those that should be our friends, such as the Jews and Israel. And so it is a hijacking of America from every front, from our inner selves to our external relations with our allies and then our borders. And the truth of the matter is that there is a political motivation, right? There's a motivation to try to change demographics in congressional districts. Mm -hmm. And we have to be really clear about that. You know, this isn't some uh, altruistic effort that's happening. There's multi-million dollar uh, organizations that are leading these caravans, allowing the registration then to voting, uh, taking away identity rules when it comes to voting. There's a Uh, a a trajectory that is meant to ultimately inform seats in Congress and uh, who the identity of our politician will be in the White House. And so let's not be, um, you know, naive, I think, and and we certainly aren't here at the round table, but let us not allow this nation to be hijacked as it is today. So John, I, I think you're probably on board the sentiment there about a nation being hijacked. But again, I want to just bring it to the law enforcement part for you because that's your specialty. Uh, yeah. So it's sort of a same question that I asked you about the NYPD, but when you see the border guards there and they're just letting them through, and sometimes they're literally opening up the door, there's, like, there's a door on some of these fences, they open up a door, they let 12 people through, then they say, wait a second, they tell them go that way to Chicago, go that way to San Diego. I mean, I'm literally not making this stuff up. What is going on with that chain of command? And and do you have sympathy for the guys that are there? I kind of sympathize with them. I don't know how they can do their job when they're being basically told not to. Yeah, look, a very good friend of mine was uh, a Border Patrol Intel. Uh, he's now with Homeland Security, he's an agent there, but um, it, he was back there about 15, 20 years ago and the situation was bad then, you know? And uh, But not like it is today, the rank and file, not like the FBI. The, the FBI rank and file now is very woke, and, and they are in lockstep with guys like Chris Ray. So when guys like Sean Hannity go the rank and file, it's nonsense. I, it's getting worse in the bureau. But the Border mm-hmm. Patrol, these guys want to do their job. Let me just say one thing about that video. So we watch that video as Americans, as conservatives, we get enraged, right? At 30,000-foot level, we see all these people pouring across a fence. Something not much scares me that I watch. Something in that video scared me. I looked at about – I watched just now about 20 – Chinese fighting age males and more than a few of them, but a dozen of them were very comfortable standing at military parade rest while waiting Hmm. to be processed or turned around. That should be concerning if that's their default stance. Mm -hmm. That should be concerning that that many Chinese fighting age males came through a fence, came through a hole in a fence. The Border Patrol rank and file, these guys want to turn them back. They want to put them right back through the fence. Mayorkas should be impeached. I mean, yeah. I think, I think yeah. the GOP, the House, is, is missing a very easy political win where they won't have to burn much political capital. You impeach Mayorkas, Democrats then have to defend that video. Play yeah. that video during his impeachment proceeding and make Democrats defend what we just watched. Bring in a guy like Mike Waltz, a congressman here in Florida, who's was a, he's the first Green Beret elected to Congress. Let him analyze those Chinese fighting age males, those Arab uh, Muslim fighting age males, and give his assessment 
as a Green Beret commander, a special forces commander on what he thinks the end result of that will be. Because I can tell you, I know Mike, a guy like Mike is going to tell you the disaster we're letting into our country. So when I look at that, I want to see Mayorkas impeached and in prison. I want to see the same for Joe Biden over this. But I'm worried, very worried about low tech asymmetrical attacks in this nation coming from these people. I'm absolutely worried about that. And that is not hyperbole. And that is not, you know, scare for media. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. This is a genuine concern of mine. No, I'm completely with you. And, and I also think that at some point, especially if we get another four years of a Democrat administration, the states are going to have to just start dealing with their own borders as they see fit. And, you know, fortunately for us, John, we're here in Florida where we got three bo water borders and uh, we've got a Coast Guard. We're gonna have to deal with Georgia and Louisiana, but okay. I, I wanna connect this though to something that's going on across Europe right now, because obviously we've seen these Hamas rallies and this pro-Palestine stuff. We've seen it in Brussels and we've seen it in France and London and elsewhere. Uh, but but Ireland has a really bizarre situation going on where they're they're extremely pro-Palestine. It's, it's Osra, maybe you can explain a little bit of what's going on on that. But, but not only that, they've also had a bunch of stabbings and all, other violent attacks by illegal immigrants, it's led to riots and a whole bunch more, uh, but they do have occasionally a, a senator that wisens up to some of this. This is Irish Senator Sharon Cogan, and listen to her make the connection between illegal immigration, having no borders, and the obvious results of that. Firstly, on Taoiseach, a statement yesterday that it is not right to connect immigration with crime is ridiculous. Not all emigrants are created equal, and an immigration policy that does not recognise this will end in disaster and tragedy. We don't record crime statistics by ethnicity, because to do so would offend liberal sensibilities, but other European countries do, the Dutch do, they've done it for 10 years, and here's what they've found. Individuals from non-Western immigration background make up 14% of the population in the Netherlands. However, they commit 40% of all crime and violent assaults. Populations from Africa or the Middle East tend to exhibit rates of two to four times higher than those of native Dutch. And in both Germany and Spain, the suspect rate of Algerian immigrants for crimes is 10 times that of natives, and in Italy it is 17 times. And Ireland has the largest groups of Algerian asylum seekers in the world being admitted into the country. Asking us not to, asking us not to commit, connect crime to emigration is asking us to ignore reality. Well, now Ireland has the eyes of the world on it. And they're posed to see how this country is being turned into a post-democratic EU vassal state, which is about to pass censorship legislation, the likes of which we have never seen in the West so that its government will be protected from the criticism of the people it is elected to government. Maybe, maybe, that will pause, give them pause for thought, but I won't hold my breath. Okay, this brave woman is obviously telling the truth, and I think in most Western European capitals, if they could reverse everything they did for the last 10 years, they would. Angela Merkel has even admitted it in Germany, and yet, Asra, it's exactly what we're doing right now in America, letting all of these people in. And not all cultures are equal, are they? Yeah, you know, and I told you guys the story of arriving in this country in the 1960s and the Muslim brothers arriving as my father did. Well, my father refused that Saudi money, right, in building a mosque in the United States. But what the a fundamental problem is that the immigrants that are coming in from Muslim countries that want to 
replicate the most totalitarian systems that they knew of religious interpretation or want to then also put on the United States or the West and Europe are the ones that are gaining so much power. This woke army that I write about is not just in the United States, it's in Europe. It is the far left in Europe that has aligned with the Islamists that have created these quote pro-Palestinian rallies. Mm. But they are not pro-Palestinian, just like you said. They are at a minimum anti-Israel and anti-Jew. And then I agree with you completely, they are pro-Hamas. And who are they? John knows these people and these institutions very well. They're organizations like Hizbut Tahrir. They have a base in Northern Virginia. I went to their meeting at a Red Roof, you know, not many years ago. They are in our Western capitals. And I know this all very personally because in 2002, I was renting a home in Karachi, Pakistan. My colleague from the Wall Street Journal was the journalist Daniel Pearl. Mm -hmm. Danny mm -hmm. came to my house for an interview with his wife, Marianne, just pregnant. And he left for that interview and he never came back. Mm -hmm. The man who orchestrated his kidnapping, leading him then to the murder and the beheading of Danny in a sign of things to come today, was a man named Omar Sheikh, radicalized at the London School of Economics in London through the British Muslim community. And that was in the 1990s that he was radicalized. So this has been decades in the making. And the answer that the West and the United States has to make is that people have to uphold the values and principles that we believe in this nation. So you cannot advocate, for example, for the extermination of an entire nation and the genocide of the people that live there. And th th those guardrails have to be put up so that they cannot exploit our freedoms to then mm -hmm. destroy our freedoms. John, you know I don't like doing the black pill on this show, but to some extent, when you hear Asra say that, um, and then we look at those videos of the people coming in, isn't it kind of like, well, the ship has sailed. They're here. We don't have the political will to do much of anything anymore. And we don't have competent leaders. Uh, yep. In some ways on either party. We've got one guy here in Florida, but beyond that, we just don't. So it's like, how could this get better? Yeah, right. And we don't have the bodies to do it. Look, to Oscar's point about this being decades in the making, uh, she's she's a thousand percent correct. Uh, I've got a good friend who's a federal agent, recently retired federal agent, and he was detailed to the U.S. Embassy in Paris 20 years ago as that agency's attache to work with, uh, you know, the heroin uh, trafficking and all that. And he was DEA. And they tell you there aren't uh, Muslim no-go zones in Paris. They lie. They lie. They were there 20 years ago. When he and the agents had to go to certain areas and, and they uh, would go with, with the Parisian police, there were times those areas were so rough, the Marine security guard detail would go with them. And those no-go zones have been there. So Oscar's 100% right. They've been there for decades. But let's blackpill this to a degree that I, that I hate to. There are about 20-some-odd million, if we're being conservative, illegals in the nation, right? You've only got about 700,000 state, local, and federal law enforcement officers. And I mean from the, the FBI on down to the smallest town police department. They would have to do nothing all day, every day, 24-7, 365, never take vacation, never take mm -hmm. a sick day, to make a minuscule dent in terms of apprehensions and deportations. We simply don't have the manpower to go out and deport all of these people. So you have to stop them before they come in. Because right now it's a cleanup effort, right? Like right now it's sanitation. 
it's it's not proactive uh, policing, proactive law enforcement. The more they let in, eventually that that sewer overflows and there's nowhere for the sewage to go. And we're getting to that point if we're not already at that point. So, no, you're, you're not blackpilling. Unfortunately, you're just being pragmatic. You're being a realist. Well, speaking of sewage, I want to get to the congressional hearing from earlier in this week that caught fire online. And anytime you talk about MIT, Harvard, and UPenn, sewage is involved. Uh, they had the three presidents, of course, of those universities up there to uh, talk about their bullying and harassment policies as it pertains to Jews, because these schools have become obviously hotbeds of Hamas insanity. Uh, take a look at video one. Uh, Elise Stefanik, who's a Democrat from New, uh, sorry, she's a Republican from New York. Don't want to get that one wrong. She's a Republican from New York. She was doing most of the questioning. Dr. Kornbluth, does M at MIT, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? If targeted at individuals not making public statements. Yes or no? Calling for the genocide of Jews does have, not constitute bullying and harassment? I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. But you've heard chants for intifada. I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context, when calling for the elimination of the Jewish people. So those would not be according to the MIT's code of conduct or rules? That would be um, investigated of, as harassment if pervasive and severe. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes. I, I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm gonna give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. Asra, I have no doubt you've seen that several times. Everyone watching this has seen it several times. It gets worse every time. I mean, the duplicity, this idea that somehow the language has to turn into action. So, okay, so then when the kids are dead, then I guess maybe it's mild bullying. But I want to connect it to something that you started with at the top of the show, uh, the duplicitous use of language. And in that context, you were talking about it when they use some of these phrases in Arabic, but we're seeing them do it in English, right in front of our faces under oath at the, the same time. Yeah, and... I want, I have watched that, yes, a hundred times, because each time I hear those words, I see the threat we face, and it's the threat from within. What has happened is that the presidents of our Ivy League institutions have become hostage to the woke army, and the money that is flowing 
from governments like Qatar and Saudi Arabia and Turkey into our universities, creating beachheads on these institutions. I know it personally because I taught journalism at Georgetown University, and then I went into the crosshairs of Georgetown University's Bin Talal Center, mm -hmm. where they have the so-called Bridge Initiative, and was dismissed and demeaned and and uh, and smeared as an Islamophobe because I dared to stand up against Islamic extremism. Followed the money, and it is flowing from foreign bank accounts into our university campuses. They've created, you know, campuses. NYU has created them in the Middle East and Qatar, mm -hmm. all these places. So when you hear the, those um, that hemming and hawing from those three academics, it's because they are now speaking the language of the woke army in hijacking free speech in the United States in order to deny people their right to live with safety and, and, and even live, just live, because what has been argued is a genocide of the Jews, and that has been the chant of the Students for Justice in Palestine camp, uh, chapters. And what is the solution? It has to be barred. These organizations have to be barred from our campuses. The academics that promote the, that hate speech have to be disallowed as, as uh, teachers in our campus culture, and that those institutions have to stop accepting money from these foreign governments. John, do you view this sort of as the end of liberalism? That, that's kind of where I'm at, at this, that we now have people in the system, in the country, who, as Asra is pointing out, are using all of our freedoms against us. They are yep. playing duplicitous uh, games with language. And yes, if you, you, can, you can make the argument, I suppose, that from the river to the sea isn't saying kill all those people. I suppose there's an, uh, that's not what I agree with, but there's a, I see how you can use language in a duplicitous way to make that point. But at sure. some point, the, the liberals cannot defend themselves anymore. And we're gonna have to start re-looking at some of our documents. I'm not, I'm not talking about stop, changing anything related to free speech, but being a more mature society when the bar barbarians are at the gate. Literally, right? I mean, look, the, the one the one good thing about uh, Sally Kornbluth and McGill and all those lunatics is you didn't even have to play the audio. I could have just looked at their faces. Mm -hmm. They all have that mm -hmm. look. Randy Weingarten has that look, that like, just they look dirty and unkempt and miserable. And they, they <laughs> at least they identify themselves without speaking, right? But how preposterous. You know, he, think about Ilhan Omar, right? There was always a popular narrative that Ilhan Omar won her, won her seat uh, in that Minneapolis area because of Somali Muslims. But that's not how she won her seat. The entire voter universe of Somali Muslims in that area with 30,000, she won her first race by 243,000 votes. It was white liberal academics mm -hmm. that put Ilhan Omar into the United States Congress. And it, we know who they are, but what I think we need to start doing are, are, are things like DeSantis does. You know, if, if you're a Harvard endowment and you wanna start uh, going, uh, playing ball with all these radical lunatic murderers, uh, uh, genocidal lunatics, not a penny of your money should be able to be invested, a, a penny of the state's money, Florida's mm -hmm. money, in endowment, not a penny of pension fund money. The only way you're going to hurt these institutions is if you start hitting them in the wallet. And I don't mean, you know, the jabbing them. I mean, knocking them in the head with sledgehammers, pulling billions upon billions upon billions out. The big banks won't do it. They're the absolute worst because they're beholden to the Saudis and the Qataris and, and half of the uh, Emiratis. 
But uh, if they started, if they started pulling out and if they started reversing, all it would take is one CEO with guts to start reversing this trend. Sadly, they don't seem to exist. But yes, I think it's the end of liberalism, classic liberalism. Uh, I think it's been dead for a while because what we're seeing right now, I'm mean, going to have the irony, right, of, of, of green haired radical lunatics in pride flags uh, going to bat for the IRGC. You know? Right. Yeah, Revolutionary Guard Corps and saying we're the bad guys in America for daring to kill Soleimani. I mean, it's just all hope is lost with those people. And I think, unfortunately, what we just saw, those those women are our academia. I'm not going to say, that, you know, that they're perverse. They are academia. And gays, uh, it, gays it, for it, Palestine is a little different I, than Palestine for gays. Yeah. yeah. Asra, can you I want to give you the, the final word here. What, what do you think in terms of you gave us a very stark warning a moment ago. John gave us a stark warning just before that. Uh, how do we defend the freedoms of America and freedom of speech and all of the beautiful traditions we have when we know the enemy is inside, using everything against us? We don't have great political leaders. Uh, our our, our uh, institutions have seemingly failed us. What is the actual white pill if we've done a little black pilling today? Yeah, you know, to me, there's this concept that my son actually told to me. I was weeping one day because I was the target of this assault by my own Muslim community calling me all sorts of names, including Ju Zionist media whore because of this hate for, for Israel, their hate for Israel. My well, son I don't said, know that this appearance is going to help you very much. Yes, I know. I lean into it. I lean into it. and wear But it like we have great dinners down in Florida. You're welcome anytime. I, I'm, I'm yes, arriving. Well, my son put his hand, his hand on my shoulder and he said, Mom, stop crying because they are terrorists of the mind. Mm. And the greatest betrayal we can give the freedoms that we enjoy is when we allow our minds to become hijacked by the propaganda and by the ideological uh, you know, um, uh, guilt that they try to put on us. I am sitting before you as a classic liberal. One still survives. And I will fight for classic liberalism just like I will for Islam because that is what we must do. We, we, we've spoken about the noble efforts of law enforcement, but how they are limited. The noble efforts of those trying to protect our legal, legal system also. So we as citizens must rise up with moral courage, defy the fear that is going to be in each one of our hearts because we believe in the humanity that is our lives. You know, that is what we have enjoyed, what we appreciate, what we want to see for our children and our, our grandchildren. And so we are the answer. We can create the nation that we want to see in the world. And, and it does rest on us. We cannot wait for the cavalry from any front because we are the cavalry. Asra, first time appearance and a brilliant ending to the show. You are definitely welcome back. John, we'll have to discuss this over tequila, whether you can come back. We'll, and as a, we'll Muslim see what's reformer, what. as a Muslim reformer, I'm going to join you in that tequila yeah. talk one day. <laughs> <laughs> anytime, anytime. Uh, have a great weekend, guys. Oh, and one more time, just happy Hanukkah to Rashida Tlaib. All right, see everybody. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Be sure to subscribe and rate this podcast. And don't forget, you can watch my direct messages live on Blaze TV and YouTube every weekday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And of course, if you want to connect with me personally and get early access to my sit-down interviews, join rubinreport.locals.com.